from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look at how the humanities and storytelling are helping incarcerated people in Wisconsin. We'll learn about the Wisconsin Muslim Project documentary opening this year's Milwaukee Muslim Film Festival. I applaud PBS uh, Wisconsin for really thinking about that and not just coming from the outside to talk about the community, but involving the community to represent the community accurately. We'll speak with the owners of Maya Ophelia's, a vegan food truck specializing in Filipino-Mexican cuisine. The greater mark that we want to leave is community and building community. Like, it's awesome that people love the food so much, but sometimes I'm like, forget about food, you know? Plus, Bubbler Talk shares the story of the Model Railroad Club of Milwaukee. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. Conversations about incarcerated people often focus on statistics, how prisoners are treated, and the many deficits they face. But poet Dasha Kelly Hamilton says these conversations often miss an essential part of the story, the humanity of those impacted. Kelly Hamilton is the co-host of a new podcast from Wisconsin Humanities called Humanity Unlocked. She joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers, along with Humanity Unlocked co-producer Jen Rubin, to talk about the podcast. When we talk about the humanities in general, I, I think that term can seem overly broad. So what are we talking about here, specifically in the context of uh, Wisconsin's correctional institutions? What do the humanities look like there? I'm going to take it back to making those selections your freshman year of courses and that idea of what these humanities classes are and how they're going to prepare me for the world. It's not accounting. It's not business. It's not these hardwired, skill-based courses. So the humanities are everything that's in between the bricks, how you think, how you feel, how you understand the world. So it's philosophy, it's art, um, it's literature, it's all of the things that we've been told don't translate into skills, um, but we are way more than our job applications. So the humanities are everything that make you a person. Yeah, and I think from the perspective of like Wisconsin Humanities, you know, like one of the sort of the mission of Wisconsin Humanities is trying to strengthen democracy really through educational and cultural programs that can like build connections and understanding, you know, across different kinds of backgrounds, people around the state. And so I've been doing storytelling workshops through Odyssey Behind Bars at a couple of prisons in Wisconsin. Dasha had been doing poetry workshops for years. And then when we got this idea for the podcast, Dasha had just started her state poet laureate project, which was doing a poetry share, sort of people inside and outside of prison. And so that sort of brought the synergy together of, oh, like, let's try and explore this as a humanities project, looking at sort of mass incarceration in Wisconsin. Because we had seen sort of the experiences of how transformational humanities could be for justice-impacted people. Now, why did you want to explore this topic this way because, as you said, both of you have been involved in this work uh, for a long time, but this is kind of taking that from doing the direct work and taking it into another audience and kind of exploring the topic, both with people who are in these correctional institutions or have been, but then also this larger audience uh, that may not know as much about these issues. Hmm. Even in front of the, the idea for the podcast series, the work 
does works in two directions. So one going into the space, um, you're going in and like I mentioned, you're you're leading with your humanity. You're leading with your ideas. You're leading with the things that get you excited. You're leading with your favorite foods. You're leading with these these human experiences as a way to build connections and shape skills, right? But on the outside, telling that story, so often we tell the story of incarceration in general through statistics, through crime reports, through fear and deficit. And all of those things are also, they're facts and they're also to some degree true, but it's missing the fact that these are parents who made a mistake, that these are someone's former neighbors, these are former high school football stars, these are people that we have work to do with and for, but they're still people. So being able to tell these stories and the power of what storytelling and poetry can do, it reminds us of all of those elements put together, the hard facts and the fragile humanity that these people, all of us as people are walking around with trying to figure out. So people respond to narratives in ways that statistics and stories and lectures don't always reach us. Kind of with that in mind, one of the uh, podcast episodes that has already been published, you look at prison publishing. We've actually had Shannon Ross on Lake Effect a few times to talk about his work with the community. But as your podcast explains, the community is part of a larger tradition of prison publishing. Uh, Historically and currently, what have these kinds of publications and prison publishing given to people inside of the system? Well, I just want to say um, one thing about that episode. So it features Robert and Shannon. And so we learned about Robert because he was in an Odyssey Behind Bars class in Oak Hill. And as he was telling, and he was getting out of prison after like 30 plus years in a couple of weeks. And as he was telling his story, I was like, wait a minute, what? You know, that's when we learned that he was you know, an award-winning prison editor of the um, prison mirror out of Stillwater in the 80s. And so like, then I started Googling and, and learned this whole history. And there's actually like the entire canon of prison newspapers going back a hundred years digitized and you could find all of them. And, and it's amazing when you look at them and you just look at that rich history of how many prison newspapers there used to be going back into the late 1800s and what they did and what they accomplished. And so there's so much fewer now. So Shannon being able now, you know, you don't need a printing press, you know, you can send it by email, you can reach a larger audience, but it's a really rich history that is worth checking out. And there's always something to be said for being able to own your own story. And they're able to tell the stories that matter to them. They're, there's uh, their news, the news is happening within their community internally, and the news is happening outside in the world. And it gives them the sense of empowerment that they're able to shape those narratives, not just about them, but from them. And from any community, any group of folks, um, whether we're, we're talking about folks that are incarcerated, we're talking about the fifth grade class that gets to make their own newsletter, you're talking about the, that one family outpost that lives far away, but they make their holiday newsletter, you're crafting your story, your news, and you're giving that sense of connection. So if you can think about what that feels for you as an individual, imagine for a population that is demeaned, disregarded, and assumed to be disinterested in news of the world and stories about themselves, how empowering that experience has been. And to Jen's point, as a someone going back and looking at the thread, the history, these archives of their story, this is now preserved. This is now, um, for people that have gone on, their story has been expanded and they were more than just these numbers that they were given. So I think it's really powerful on so many levels to be able to 
shape the world around you and about you. And and while you were talking, I did find what it's called. In case you want to know, it's called the American Prison Newspaper Collection. So it's quite interesting. If anybody is interested, wants to Google it. It goes. It's called Voices from the Inside, and it looks at from the 1800s to the present. A really fascinating resource. It sounds like. Now, you've explored, of course, newspapers, you've explored uh, storytelling, poetry. What are the ways that we see the humanities showing up in our correctional institutions? And what are you hoping to explore inside of this topic as you move through this season of the podcast? Well, it's a a six-episode season, and so we're going to be looking more closely at like a community-based education. Marquette University teaches courses where half of the student body is currently incarcerated and half is not, but they're all Marquette students. So just kind of looking at that, we're going to be looking at um, painting arts. I don't know how to do that. is that visual arts? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then we're also going to be looking more clear, looking more clearly at humanities and, and reentry. And it opens up a conversation of how, and it's a how dot 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 how to how not to. When I launched my project as um, Wisconsin State Laureate, I was able to sit down and have a conversation with Secretary Carr over Department of Corrections. And one of the things we talked about was the importance of a budget. Right. We've all heard the language that a budget indicates a city or an organization's priorities uh, or a household's priorities. Right. (laughs) Um, And so for the DOC to invest heavily, as Secretary Carr and I discussed, in deficits, which are necessary. I mean, we want to fill the deficit of people that have alcohol dependency, people that have mental wellness, um, need mental wellness support, people that have health conditions, people that are recovering, their whole adult life is recovering from childhood trauma. Those things are real. And that's only filling in the deficits. But where the humanities, it, fe- it fills in people's strengths. Right. So leaning into what a a person's thoughts, a person's emotions, a person's memories, um, how they re reimagine their situation, the world around them. These are all of the tools and skills and possibilities that humanities gives us the permission to explore. So not only what that does for a person, but now we're looking at entire programs. What are some engagements that can go in and outside these institutions that are going to be helpful to the people and also give them skills for when they um, return home? So it's expanding what's possible. It's expanding the what if. Going into the training skill set, we need those and, and those deliver a very specific outset. You have someone who knows how to weld. You have someone who has a better management of an addiction. Going into the humanities, you're giving people fuel to be more. And we don't know what that's going to look like, but isn't that what life is? (laughs) And humanities feeds into that human part of just needing the inspiration, the fuel, and the wherewithal to get through that unknown. So this is what we hope that the podcast and these conversations invite people to do, to think about who else and how else for us to go somewhere else in this conversation of corrections. Would you say that creating this kind of emotional or spiritual uh, toolbox is a part of this larger goal of de-incarceration? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm speaking as a pedestrian, not as an 
um, there's a pedestrian human out here who has a compromised and media influenced understanding of what happens inside the walls, appreciating how people find themselves in those side those buildings in the first place, and making one pause to at least consider what in the world kind of system have we built that we have the most humans incarcerated in the world, in the entire world. So there's something in our system, there's something in our construction and our foundation that is flawed. And those flaws have flawed entire communities, which have flawed whole generations, subsequent generations of humans. And we don't have that conversation. Instead, what we do is we are terrified and we vilify um, these air quotes villains who are locked up in these buildings. But we have to backtrack and think about what, where and how that can be different and what's going on for us to move into a different space. And I think if you've you've interviewed Shannon Ross a couple of times, I mean, the thing that, you know, he talks about changing the narrative and he and Robert Robert are having this conversation about what kind of stories they would tell in their prison newspapers. And there would be guys wanting them to like talk about their case. He's like, we're not going to talk about your case. No one's going to want to change what's happening inside prisons until they see us as people. And they're not going to see us as people until they see us as people, you know? And so Mm -hmm. partly how we frame the stories and the narrative is sort of key to that. For sure. Well, Jen, Dasha, thank you both so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you for having us. Dasha Kelly Hamilton is a creative change agent, Wisconsin's former poet laureate, and she co-hosts the Humanity Unlocked podcast, along with former Lake Effect contributor Adam Carr. Jen Rubin works for Wisconsin Humanities, and she's the co-producer of the podcast. Rubin and Kelly both spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. Today marks the start of the 8th annual Milwaukee Muslim Film Festival at the Oriental Theatre. The films shown include stories from Muslim communities around the globe to encourage reflection, connection, and spark meaningful conversations. The festival's opening night film does this, but specifically for Wisconsinites. The new PBS Wisconsin documentary, Wisconsin Life, the Wisconsin Muslim Project, highlights Muslim communities and individuals all across the state. The film was made possible through a partnership between the Milwaukee Muslim Women's Coalition, PBS Wisconsin, and We Are Many, United Against Hate. To learn more about the Wisconsin Muslim Project, I'm joined now by Janan Najib of the Milwaukee Muslim Women's Coalition, John Miskowski of PBS Wisconsin, and Masood Akhtar of We Are Many, United Against Hate. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So today marks the eighth annual Milwaukee Muslim Film Festival. Janan, you founded this effort and have been partnering with Milwaukee Film since 2015. What makes this year especially notable to you? Well, of course, it's the opening night uh, film and project that we have, which is uh, very unique. Uh, Normally, you know, opening night is um, a feature film uh, that we uh, have screened and decided that that's what we're going to show. But this opening night, we're going to basically showcase the one and a half year project that we had with PBS Wisconsin, which is really... um, presenting films and photography and just um, an overview of the Muslims in Wisconsin, you know, what people are doing um, 
both the the unique, the uh, interesting, the average, and helping Wisconsin really get to know their Muslim community better. Um, we also have a, a biography project and animation that's uh, part of the project that is available to educators um, and is going to be part of the collection of Wisconsin biographies. And um, opening night, we also are going to have a Middle Eastern musical group perform. And so we're very excited. Lots happening. And as you said, the opening night film, it is Wisconsin Life, the Wisconsin Muslim Project. But before we get into the film specifically, I do want to explain to listeners the partnerships between all of your organizations here that made this possible. Masood, let's start with you. What is We Are Many United Against Hate and what led you to found it? So after 9-11, you know, as you can see, the Muslim community has been very actively engaged in organizing events to change the perceptions, misconceptions that people have about Islam and Muslims. So what we learned through that process that engagement is the best way to communicate your message. A lot of people are reacting out of fear and confusion and others. So in 2016, I got a call from a local TV station that there is a discussion in the White House about starting a Muslim registry in America. Think about that. Hitler did that for the Jewish people. He started Jewish registry. So I got a call and said, well, how would you respond to that? How would your Muslim community respond to that? I didn't know how I'm going to do that. So I got on television and the question was asked and I gave my background. I said, look, you know, I came here as an immigrant from India 40 years ago. My background is business, and I gave up my Indian citizenship 25 years ago based on what this country offers. Singling out a minority based on religion is not what America is all about. And I got very emotional at that time. And then a thought came to my mind right there. Then I said, but I like the idea of starting a registry that will actually bring people together regardless of their ethnicity, color, religion, or even political affiliation. So on your show, I am announcing today, I'm going to start a movement called Anti-Hate Registry, which we now call We Are Many United Against Hate. But when the program was here next day, I got 500 emails from people who watched me on television and said, sign me up, sign me up. And that's how this thing started. And then... My goal was, okay, how I'm going to make a change? Well, 9-11 taught me the importance of sharing stories of real-life people. So I recruited all of these people from farmer head groups because at one time they started the largest head group. Then somebody reacted nicely and changed their life. That resonated with a lot of people. So I started taking these stories to classrooms and community. The students got very, very excited about that opportunity. So that's where we were. We're working on some of those things, but that experience, this funding opportunity came up about the Doris Duke Foundation. And I'm also on John's board, PBS Friends. Reach out to John at that time. Here is an opportunity. We have been doing this. Why not together? Let's apply for this grant and then start working together to change the perception. And I'm so thankful that John took that back to his board and got the approval. And now we are all partnered together and working here. So I'm very, very excited about this opportunity, what we're seeing. 
John, let's bring you in. You're the director of television at PBS Wisconsin. Can you share a bit more about how PBS became involved and the importance of having these visual components and stories to share with viewers statewide and beyond? Yes, you know, this Masood, I forgot the beginning of this, was started at many soccer fields um, where our boys played soccer together. Um, and um, well, we got to know each other. And as he was starting this organization, um, then he reached out to me and we really saw a common cause. We really believe that um, stories um, help uh, connect. We can't help. And every day we rock around our place and we see images of Fred Rogers. There's a reason that Fred Rogers kept talking about that neighborhood, because those are the uh, things that connect our lives. Those are people we run into every day. And if we can build strong neighborhoods, we can build strong communities and states. So Masood, uh, these conversations from the soccer fields um, led to learning about the work of his organization and really inspired us to collaborate. And then, um, of course, connecting with Janan was a wonderful addition to that partnership. And, um, and, and you heard Masood earlier talk about engagement. And I, I think that's really a key thing is to bring people together um, to see stories and understand things uh, in a deeper and more human, uh, more human way um, than sometimes the political conversation takes us. In Wisconsin life, the Wisconsin Muslim Project, there's the goal, as you're talking about, John, stimulating connections, knowledge, empathy, appreciation for one another, for our neighbors. And you go from Milwaukee to Nina to Fox Valley and more. Can you share how you developed the project and the process of highlighting these different people and Muslim communities here in Wisconsin? Well, I was going to go back to Masood and Janan of making connections um, for us in, uh, in Muslim communities. And, and we, we, one thing that I, I really pride about public media um, is that we take the time. So our producers would not put on a clock and said, you know, get us a story in a week. Um, that, that often doesn't work. Um, we were able to use our connections. Um, the Janan and Masood helped us open doors, um, build trust, and, and share those stories. We're really mindful of our name is PBS Wisconsin and that Wisconsin part of it. This is not simply a story of the urban areas of, of our state, um, as folks know this story well, uh, certainly in western Wisconsin, in the Fox Valley, um, all over the state. There's growing diversity in our communities and appreciation for that and some tension around that. Um, so we were really mindful of, of really traveling the state and, and identifying, sharing those stories. So people said, that, that's one of my neighbors. That's my neighbor. And connect with that person and their story and their values. Janan or Masood, did you want to add anything about uh, the process of helping to connect and facilitate these stories? Um, it was great, really, to be part of this collaboration because, of course, PBS, you know, came with their expertise um, and uh, United Against Hate came with their expertise. I feel that as the Milwaukee Muslim Women's Coalition, um, our decades of work in Wisconsin and uh, with the community and with other agencies, we were, I think, 
able to make those connections and make people comfortable because, you know, the Muslim community is oftentimes um, apprehensive when it comes to the media, because unfortunately there's a lot of misinformation. They're usually uh, misrepresented. The presentation about Muslims is, uh, it's not always accurate, um, of course. And, and we're seeing this uh, repeatedly. And so when you have someone in the community that they recognize that they see as somebody that can sort of bridge that divide and you come in and you say, no, this is a trustworthy project. This is something you can feel confident being part of, you know, having that conversation with them and then putting them in touch with PBS um, who don't normally, you know, would not know these individuals. I think that that was that was so important. And that's actually a model that I think is phenomenal. And I I applaud PBS uh, Wisconsin for really thinking about that and not just coming from the outside to talk about the community, but involving the community to represent the community accurately. Yeah, I think, I think this is an excellent uh, point in terms of relationship building, because I mentioned during one of our board meetings at PBS is that the way I'm looking at right now, I am looking at misconceptions and how we're going to address that for the Muslim community. But if you think about the hate crimes and those kinds of things, Jewish community, Asian American community, and all those kinds of things, once this model is developed, this is an excellent way to do the same thing for the other communities who are subject to hate of how to change that. And I am full confidence that looking at this successful model, what we are doing here together, is going to be duplicated for those communities not in Wisconsin, but one day will become a national model for other states to follow. Masood Akhtar is the president and founder of We Are Many United Against Hate. John Miskowski is PBS Wisconsin's director of television, and Janan Najib is the executive director of the Milwaukee Muslim Women's Coalition and also the founder of the Milwaukee Muslim Film Festival. The film festival starts tonight with a free screening of Wisconsin Life, the Wisconsin Muslim Project, and runs through the 22nd. You can find more information at wuwm.com. In about 15 minutes, Bubbler Talk explores a place for train enthusiasts. But first, we'll speak with the couple behind Maya Ophelia's food truck that can be found in Milwaukee's Bayview neighborhood about their eclectic vegan cuisine. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Like a Fact on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. This summer, the Maya Ophelia's food truck reopened full time at the Bar Mothership in Bayview. The couple behind the vegan Filipino Mexican kitchen is Jack and Chase Rolden. They started Maya Ophelia's in 2018, naming their business after Chase's mother and Jack's aunt. But they struggled during the pandemic and shut down for almost two years. Now, they're back, serving up vegan versions of the food they loved as kids. On the weekends, they offer pan dulces and other pastries through the bakery side of their business, called Moon Cherry Sweets. 
The couple joins WUWM's Lena Tran to talk about the food and memories that inspire them. I wanted to talk to Jack and Chase because the food that they're cooking, you can't really find anything like it anywhere else in the city. They offer empanadas, crunchy lumpia filled with oozing cheese, Filipino-style ramen served with a runny egg and bok choy. They have these meaty sandwiches with lots of stuff, lechon or steak topped with rich sauces and sour pickles. And it's all plant-based, infused with nostalgia for the food that they loved as kids. Everything's over the top, and somehow, just right. We started out talking about where they are now. I never realized that like what we were doing would be something that would get national attention. We started a business because we were just kids that sought community through food. Creating community through food breaks down a lot of barriers and it breaks down a lot of walls and it creates a lot of cohesiveness amongst folks. Everyone can relate to something, whether if you're talking about meatloaf or whatever. To see our stuff take off has been like very surreal because I think some people are like, oh my God, you're like this multi-million dollar business. And it's like, no, we're just two small people with a small business, <laughs> you know? Yeah. How do you describe the food that you two make together? I think we would describe it as like third culture cuisine. We are both first gen kids. So our parents are from different countries, but we grew up here. So a lot of the food that we make, it's all rooted in the childhood foods that we grew up eating, flavors and techniques and the places that we got those foods. I know a lot of the moon cherry stuff mostly is Jack, but it stems a lot from gas station sweets and stuff. That's always his sweet spots. A lot of the stuff that I do um, with my Ophelia's is all like stuff that my mom would make me that maybe I wouldn't like, so I'd make it my own, but now I'm older and I can do that on my own, yeah. yeah. What was food like in each of your households growing up that you've kind of incorporated into what you're doing now? My mom's big rule was always we would sit down at the dinner table and we would have dinner and there would be no TV and we would talk and it was like this community thing. We would eat all these different amazing things that my mom would cook, but it was like also just that we were always growing as like a family. That part of like the communityness is like what we bring into our food even. We're like, we're not sitting out here like at the table with everyone, but I like to think that through what we make, we are, you know, and we're having a conversation with you and we're growing and building. Like, yes, we love having a food business, but it's not just to like sell some food, turn a profit and go home. It's like to create and grow and foster relationships to together. Were y'all partners before starting this together? Like how did my Ophelia's become a thing? Well, we met and our thing was both eating or like following a plant-based lifestyle. And at the time there was not a lot of stuff here like that as far as like restaurants and stuff there's nowhere to go on a hot date to yeah nowhere yeah so we would always just cook a bunch of stuff and eat it all and it just kind of i don't know we kind of wanted to bring that to other people who like grew up in more foreign atmospheres and didn't really have the chance to eat a plant-based lifestyle that wasn't just burgers and sandwiches and stuff i love all that stuff but you know it's like i grew up eating some real weird stuff and I crave it. Like Say more. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, yeah. like intestines, skins. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, I always think of, like, lengua was always my favorite taco, the tongue, you know, like, it's still to this day, like, yeah. I will say is probably one of the best 
cuttings for a taco, you know? I feel that. My granddad used to, like, give me a plate full of chicken gizzards. And I was like, wow, I love that stuff. (laughs) But, you know, if you get the gizzards, you're like, that's like that's like a royal status. Like, you're the chosen one if you get the, you know, and. It's been really fun and funny, I feel like, to make these things. Like, I was just on the phone with my mom, you know, and talking to her about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're, I veganized everything you've made down to your meatloaf. And she's like, what? You know, like, why? <laughs> and I'm like, because I love it. Say more about your relationship to tradition or expectations. Like, what would the aunties think? My mom, I think, is equal parts flattered and appalled <laughs> by, by, like, why would you veganize this? But is also, like, has this memory, you know, and it's a core memory. It's like, even with our kids, like, we'll share these things. We even get the aunties at the truck where they're like, why are you doing this? What were you thinking? And then they try it and they're like, oh, you know, I think that's the auntie. I think a sign of approval. I think it's like comfort. Everyone likes to eat the stuff that they grew up eating, and we do too. Fostering like that whole community sense through food, as I feel like, relates to that a lot, at least for me. I just want to eat stuff that I love, but that's also like good for me and good for the planet and sustainable and not super expensive and like accessible. So that's, I think that's a big thing in relation to like why we make the stuff that we do. Yeah. Yeah. And you grew up in, like, kind of a mixed Filipino household? and I grew up, so my mom is Filipino. My stepdad, who I was raised majorly by, is actually Palestinian. My real dad is Puerto Rican and German. So I grew up eating a whole whirlwind of foods, and my granddad also loved the ladies when he was younger. I have family all around the world. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I grew up eating everything my mom is irish and then my dad being mexican it's like they were bonded by catholicism you know like Love that. yeah <laughs> we'll, we'll bond folks together yeah sometimes the the, the colonizing is what binds us yeah. i think sometimes too it's like with folks you know it's like we're we're all this or we're all that but it, we're both just very i hate using you know we're all all american in that way you know like So you said that back when you met and started cooking a lot together, like you couldn't find a lot of plant-based food out for like a nice night together. I'm curious what that's like. You're cooking plant-based food in the land of cheese and dairy. How has that been? And do you think that Milwaukee or Wisconsin has influenced your cooking? I, I was a meat and cheese kid. You know, I'm from here. So yeah, I loved, I loved meat. I loved cheese. And that is why we do I was just talking to Jack the other day about how I think it's kind of funny because most of the stuff that we do is very meat heavy. Other places can cook tofu, you know, and people are like, yes, tofu. But we, if we put too much tofu, you know, they're like, we need that myophilia's vegan meat. You know, like, I feel like we've made a name for ourselves because you, you grew up so meat heavy. And Chase is all like, I remember how this tastes. I will figure out how to make this vegan because I know how this tastes still. And I think that's part of what brings people that comfort and familiarness to our food, even if they've never tried a tamale or like, you know, an empanada or something, they're like, ooh, but it tastes meaty and I remember that. I think it was also super influenced because we're trying to get people to try different things, but in a more familiar setting. So I feel like that's the biggest reason why we do things the way we do. But I think that's how, at least for when I'm thinking of stuff, that's how I'm mostly influenced by like growing up here and how people eat here and how I grew up versus how my friends grew up eating, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
the way that you talk about putting dishes together, it's like this puzzle or you're like, how do I recreate this thing and get it to match up with this childhood memory? And it seems like such an specifically engaging experience. Like, what is that like? And like, how long does it take you to be like, aha, this is it? We're such type A people where we're like, we need to figure this out. We need to figure this out now. So it's it's like a that day things get discovered because it's like once we have that like, aha, we're like, we need to dive into this right now and figure it out. I also think for us too, it's really important that we're not just making the traditional things because the way we always see it is like we got taught to make those things you know like we we can all make it at home but like we want to make something for kids like us where you it's not something you know how to make necessarily or that you can't make at home so that's also why like I hate the term fusion you know but it's like we try to create like an elevated version of it or something that's slightly like a twist or different and that's also really important to us and I think the part that takes longer sometimes is figuring out like how are we going to reimagine this we grew up eating this and we want to make it like exciting so that way it's like I want to come here and eat this and I'm not like yeah I can make that at home so I feel like this summer it was tough for food truck owners and businesses across the country in terms of extreme heat we had wildfire smoke you're cooking plant-based food out of this sense of responsibility or obligation to the planet how do you think about climate intersecting with the work that you do we think about it a lot we were just talking the other day where it's like people don't know that if you eat plant-based for like one meal you save over 40,000 gallons of water and like a couple animal you know and it's just like it's wild that's why too we've adapted all of our things and why sometimes the menu changes so much because we truly like try to source everything from local farmers and local makers and buy everything from local small business owners what is happening with the climate I think a lot of people are unfortunately don't pay attention to because we're like oh we can breathe we're out here it's great it's a growing thing that I think especially in food service we all have to kind of wake up and check ourselves owning a food business inherently like creates a lot of waste it just does even if you donate the food there's just certain things that you're just literally throwing in the trash it's it's a thing that I think about a lot that where I'm always like trying to be like okay how can we reel it in how and that's like why to our menu sometimes changes and we're because we're always kind of fine-tuning what is our impact like and footprint on the planet reducing waste is a huge thing but also erasing the stigma of vegan food that's still very much a thing especially I feel like in the Midwest because a lot of people didn't grow up cooking for themselves a lot of even a lot of people we know now like cook from the can or like buy and there's nothing wrong with that but you know I think we do it too sometimes I just think it's like self self sustainability you know it's like we're introducing different ways to eat food that maybe people think they don't like and helping them realize like oh I can grow this in my garden and cook in a different way and actually really really like it Jack and Chase Rolden are the chefs and owners of Maya Ophelia's. You can find their truck parked behind the bar Mothership in Bayview. They spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation you'd like to hear on Lake Effect, give our community connection line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. 
in about five minutes, we'll celebrate the sounds of winged creatures in our Sounds Like Milwaukee series. But first, we'll learn about the Model Railroad Club of Milwaukee and the building they operate out of. That's next on Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. A WUWM listener wanted to know about the historic miniature train museum under the train tracks on National Avenue. So WUWM's Chuck Kornbach looks into it for Bubbler Talk. Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. I'm Chuck Kornbach. This time on Bubbler Talk, we're clearing up a mystery for local listener Monique Balistreri, who says she was out socializing on East National Avenue and came upon an odd-looking building underneath elevated train tracks a couple miles south of downtown. And I randomly looked through the windows one night and was incredibly surprised by just this miniature town and train tracks. Balistrieri eventually discovered she'd come upon the location of the Model Railroad Club of Milwaukee. The site was part of the recent Doors Open Milwaukee. Club members later invited WUWM back during a meeting night for an extended stop, look, and listen. That's one of the Model freight trains rolling through a tiny town in the club's main room. There are miniature buildings, trees, rocks, bridges, billboards, and many other created bits of scenery. At the controls, sitting in an area above the tracks, is a club member we've agreed to call the operator. We ask about the electrical devices his left and right hands are operating. So what's in your left hand with that? Uh, the rheostat. The rheostat? Yes, it takes uh, 18 volts direct current and meters it down to whatever speed you want. And what is your right hand controlling? The block power. Right now we're in uh, block 11 and we're going to go into block 12. The single track is about eight scale miles to broke it up into 19 different blocks. The operator explains the divisions mean you don't need electricity going to all over the track at the same time. The Model Railroad Club is more than just a test of design and circuits, of course. For 17-year member David Filipiak, it's a way to reconnect with great memories of his father, who was a tool and die maker. My first train was very, very cheaply put together. It was an accumulation of, I think we could call it donations from the garbage can. But to me, it was precious. People that knew my dad from work, yeah, I got a bag of track. Well, okay, it was all rusty, but we cleaned it up and it was working. Lo and behold, we found an engine. My dad got it all cleaned and we needed a transformer. One of the electricians at work had found something that was working. Filipiak also became a tool and die maker. He says in more recent times he came to the Model Railroad Club with his son and got him involved in making model railroad kits. Bill Repke grew up playing near, to his grandmother's dismay, the railroad tracks in the Menominee Valley. Some of his ancestors worked for the Milwaukee Road. 
Repke says as now an almost 50-year club member, he really enjoys when youth groups come in to see the model trains. In this day and age, I think we're trying to push there's more to life than a video game or uh, your telephone. And uh, that, you know, if you find something you're interested in, it uh, opens up a wonderful world for you as a child, you know, to read and to build models and then meet people who like the same thing. Our Bubbler Talk questioner, Monique, also wondered about the club's building. It's an old Milwaukee Road, World War I-era passenger station that the club has been using for about 87 years. And yes, trains pass overhead. Club secretary George Edwards says the sound comes with the rent the club pays to the Canadian Pacific Railroad. Edwards says the roughly dozen members would welcome newcomers and have few requirements. Just uh, a pulse, interest. <laughs> but no, the thing is, we have people who've joined there, like I said, have no real knowledge of working with model trains, you know, maybe a little bit. Now, hopefully, people have a skill we can use, too. If your skill is just sweeping the floor, that's fine. For those curious about the Model Railroad Club of Milwaukee, they have an open house the last Sunday of each month, meaning this month on the 29th, starting about 1.30 p.m. Chuck Kornbach, 89.7, WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Support for Bubbler Talk comes from Palamos Pizza and UW Credit Union. What have you always wanted to know about the Milwaukee area? Visit wuwm.com slash bubblertalk to submit your question. Bubbler Talk is a regular series on WUWM. You can hear it every Thursday on Lake Effect and Fridays during Morning Edition and All Things Considered. If you have a question you'd like us to explore for Bubbler Talk or to check out past episodes, head on over to wuwm.com. Before we close out today's show, we're bringing you another episode of our series, Sounds Like Milwaukee, where we ask members of the community to share sounds you appreciate. WUWM's Mayan Silver has this edition that celebrates winged creatures and other animals. Mick Ryder lives and works in the Milwaukee area. He sent in this sound. It's a sandhill crane, one of two crane species found in North America. They're tall, gray birds with long necks and spindly legs. And they're one of the oldest bird species on Earth. There are a lot of them in Wisconsin. Nick has seen them in front of his house in Brookfield. I really like this sound that the sandhill crane makes because it really is so primal. It makes and forces me to, to, to be connected to the natural world around me. And it's almost like you get, you get sucked in and um, you can forget about uh, the, the urban or suburban or uh, human landscape and, and, and then there's that connection to uh, the natural world, uh, almost from a, a dinosaur sound. Nick often hears them as they're flying above. And so that's why I feel like it's some sort of pterodactyl sound that's coming across the sky to uh, communicate. And what do you imagine that they're communicating? They're, I, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> Where they're, they're probably talking to other friends uh, in the area to say, here we are. 
Like the equivalent of texting? Exactly. Just like texting. Nick doesn't know of any scientific studies showing that sandhill cranes are descendants of dinosaurs, or if their call is anything like a dinosaur sounded. But he likes to imagine pterodactyls nonetheless. He says if anyone happens to have a recording of dinosaurs, send it his way. Now for our next ode to talkative flying friends. My name is Adam Carr, and as I was walking down Pier 3, I reached 37th and was greeted by a ruckus, a clattering, a cacophony, and it was birds. It sounded like many choruses of birds singing different songs all at the same time. And they were loud. They kind of startled me a little bit. And I walk around my neighborhood. I'm used to a lot of different sounds. It's a busy neighborhood. There's all kinds of noises. And these birds, chirpy and busy and loud and maybe preparing for something, they caught my attention. And it was beautiful. Adam was on the edge of the Menominee Valley next to Three Bridges Park and the Hank Aaron State Trail. Let's hear next from a different type of animal. Hi, my name is Lisa Gulyalmi. I'm the assistant curator of the family farm here at the Milwaukee County Zoo. So I see a lovely horse over there. Uh, yeah, that's Nelson, our Norwegian Fjord. We just got him this year. He's awesome. Nelson is a light tan horse with a close-cropped mane that looks like piano keys, almost zebra-like. And he's a morning person, or horse. So we know that the whinny that we hear in the morning is a good morning sound. It's like, hi, I missed you, or there you are again. It's, it's a, he recognizes us as the people that take care of him. He recognizes the other staff as people that he sees every day. So that's a, hi, come see me sound. So can you explain why the whinny is one of your favorite sounds? It's, it makes you feel good in the morning. It makes you feel alive when you can hear the animals that you take care of every day appreciate the fact that you're here and that you're here for them. So, you know, does a tiger do that? Not sometimes, but it's not the same because we have a different connection. I can touch these animals. I can hug them when I feel sad. What sounds comfort you? Send in your favorite sounds, animal or otherwise. The instructions are at wuwm.com. By Jan Silver, 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Sounds like Milwaukee wraps up Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, Eileen Heikinen Weiss, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Mayan Silver, Emily Files, Lena Tran, and Chuck Kornbach from the WUWM News Team this week. Jason Reavy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, you can download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Join us again on Monday at noon, where we'll speak with one of Milwaukee's female arborists about what's being done to add to our urban forest. Plus, we'll tell you about a new play inspired by the life of legendary Green Bay Packer, Donald Driver. 
Thanks so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.